Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Spencer Sherman. Spencer was named one of the top wealth advisors in the United States. He founded a sustainable financial firm with Buddhist values, and he has an MBA from Wharton Business School. With Sounds True, Spencer is the co-author of the Money and Spirit Workshop. He also is participating in Sounds True's new Inner MBA program and bringing his work on the inner mastery of money to the Inner MBA. The Inner MBA is a nine-month training program Sounds True is producing in partnership with LinkedIn, Wisdom 2.0, and a division of NYU called Mindful NYU. You can learn more at innermbaprogram.com. Truth be told, most of the people I know have some type of neurotic or confused or highly charged relationship with money. Here Spencer describes how we could have a wise, healthy, uncharged relationship with money. Here's my conversation with Spencer Sherman. Spencer, I'm so glad that you're bringing to the Inner MBA a special accelerator workshop on the inner mastery of money. And I think when someone hears at first the inner mastery of money, I can imagine them thinking, God, even before inner mastery, I'd love to have a decent relationship with money before I even get to the mastery level. So to start, what keeps us from having a healthy relationship with money. And truth be told, I don't know very many people who do have a healthy (laughs) relationship with money. So why is this so tough? Yeah, yeah, Tammy. You know, we have money, I I like to think of money, I like the metaphor of of the iceberg. And on the, the tip of the iceberg, what we see is represents all the ordinary things with money that we often think about like bills and taxes and investments and insurance and credit cards and mortgages and houses and all that's in the the top half of the iceberg. And then there's the submerged part of the iceberg. And that's where our fixed beliefs with money and our fear lies. And that's what I've discovered really drives the bus with money. I mean, I have a Wharton MBA. And what I've discovered is that that those beliefs that we cling to around money and the fear we have around it drive the best of us in terms of our behavior with money. 
And I think you know, I think you know a little bit of my story with money that I had, you know, this um, experience of running into a building that was completely unsafe as the firefighters were putting out a fire in Philadelphia a long time ago. And I and a few other people somehow convinced the fire marshal to let us into that building where my stuff was, my material possessions, only discovered they were all worthless after I recovered them. And that day was a huge wake up for me, Tammy, because I realized like I had this belief very solidly embedded in my mind that my self-worth equals my net worth. And I've discovered that's a somewhat pervasive belief in this culture. And that belief drove me to value my stuff more than my life. Okay. So when we talk about this iceberg analogy, which I think is a powerful one, can you give me some examples of fixed beliefs that are uh, driving the bus, as you say, when it comes to yes. how we handle money? Yes. And I'll, I'll share some from that I can recall from some of the workshops I've done uh, God will, t will provide. Uh, it's easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than a rich man into heaven. Stay out of debt. I don't deserve it. Don't trust people with money. I mean, here, here is one that I had very strongly growing up. Rich people are happier. Money is everything. You know, your net worth equals your self-worth. You have to work hard to get money. I've heard this from a lot of women say, women aren't good with money. I didn't get that money success gene, money is evil. Those are some of the messages that I hear and those messages override anything we learn in school around money. And that's why I've seen MBAs do this, make the same, same errors with money, do the same irrational things that the rest of us do with money. So I've realized that it's not just about what we know or even our experience with money, it's these emotional beliefs, these fixed beliefs are really driving our everyday money behavior. Okay, well, let, let's just choose one that I think is pretty common, mm -hmm. which is I'll never feel really safe and secure. I'll never have enough money. I'll mm -hmm. never have enough money. I just, I don't feel safe. I don't feel secure. So let's say someone says, I know that's a belief that I have because I've had it my whole life and I've never felt secure never felt like I had enough. How is Spencer Sherman with his work around the inner mastery of money gonna help me with that belief? I've felt it my whole yeah. life and I, it seems entrenched. Yeah, this belief about not having enough. Well, you're in very good company because I think all of us have that sense that there's not enough. I mean, we live in a culture that's all about more. And you know, John Rockefeller, the first world's first billionaire in 1916, his definition of enough was just a little bit more. And I think that was an incredible Dharma teaching because if he's saying that enough is a little bit more, then we know it's not about accumulating. It's not about getting to a number. Although I will say, and I've been very clear about this, that there is our, our base, there are basic needs need to be satisfied of food, shelter, healthcare, basic education, all of that. And then literally someone doesn't have enough if they don't have those things satisfied. And that puts us into a huge place of stress. So I always said that there's, I think there's a huge opportunity 
in this country, if we were to give everybody a living wage and so that they had enough for the basics, we, we, first of all, we'd recognize their humanity, but we'd also, uh, we'd also see all this economic potential. So as a Wharton MBA, I'm saying, Hey, let's, let's, let's think about this idea of enough, because if everybody had the basics for enough, we'd, we'd, we liberate a lot of potential in in everybody. Uh, you know, we're sort of getting um, when when people are in that stress place around around not having enough, they're not creative. So there, so I think there's 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 an opportunity there. And for the rest of us, I think it's this is this realization that we're never going to get to enough by by wanting more, and that the way to enough is to start appreciating and meeting what you have, start living in this present moment, because enough also brings us into the future. Like someday I'll have, when this happens, or when I have this much money, then I'll be in a place of equanimity. Then I'll be able to relax. And I'm, and I'm saying, and I think John, D, John Rockefeller was saying, you're not gonna get there. So it's time to just recognize that you need to start practicing being, taking on this practice of enough right now. Mm -hmm. Now, here you are, you're the founder mm -hmm. of Abacus Wealth yeah. Advisors. And I presume that you met at a conference room table again and again and again with many wealthy individuals. You were helping them invest their money. I'm sure you met with people at all different levels of financial means, but here you're meeting with people who clearly have enough. They could relax. They could say, you know, we're good. We're good. We're at peace. We're, we're chill. But yet they're not. They're not acting their way. They're not feeling that way. And even hearing you talk about it, I wonder how much it penetrates people's beings such that like what actually works to get people to come to this place of relaxation and ease. Yeah, it's it's the recognition of the stress that not having enough produces. That when we're always on that hamster wheel of wanting something to be different, wanting more, we there's there's a stress with that. And I, I think it, when that stress gets to be intense enough, we wake up and say, what are the other options? And if nobody is getting to this place of enough, not even the billionaires, then what if I just start to experience that I have enough money, enough time, enough friends, uh, enough skills, enough brain power? What if, what if I have enough right now? What, you know, to me, that, that is, it's a liberating idea and it's one that we can start to practice. One of the most interesting aspects to me, Spencer, of your work is how you draw on Buddhist teachings yeah. and use their wisdom to help us with our money neurosis and money insanity. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you can give some examples of that where you draw on Buddhist teachings and let it help us with our money yeah. life. Yeah, well, I think one of the principles of Buddhism is is being content with what one has, and it's letting go of the future and living in this moment, being right here with this inhale and this exhale. 
And this work is about coming into the present moment, is letting go of the future bringing you anything that you don't have today. You know, again, Tammy, this is assuming that we all have those basics. And I'm, I thought I'd share one other example of somebody who asked, a client asked me, who had a couple of million dollars, which is a, a lot of money, and but said to me that if you can double my money, I'll be free. I'll have this freedom that, that we, you know, he almost talked about it in, in, in a Buddhist context. And I got so excited about that. You know, this possibility of that, if I could only double his money, he'd be free. And five years later, the markets cooperated, he saved money, he had doubled his money. I walk into the office and I'm so excited to deliver this incredible news. And instead of him being less stressed, he's more stressed. He has a look of dread on his face. And it actually was the beginning of a wake up call for him. And this person has actually become one of the most generous um, clients that I have. Uh, and that's the other thing that happens when we get to this place of enough, we start, you start to become more generous or, and I think it's also true that as we become more generous, we recognize the enoughness of what we have. And that generosity, you know, leads to a, a much more open heart. I mean, it's, it's a, it, it, it's a condition for happiness and well-being. And then it also helps, it, it connects us to many other beings as well. So, so let's talk about um, an, so the, this structure of the Brahma Viharas from Buddhism. So the Brahma Viharas are the four highest emotions in Buddhism. And the one I like to start with is equanimity because that's all about finding peace within the storms. And I think so much with money, we have this idea that, or in a lot of areas of our life, that if I do everything well, you know, if I brush my teeth, floss, take the right vitamins, meditate, listen to all the podcasts, it sounds true, et cetera, you know, I'll have this life that's just smooth and even keel the whole way, right? And this, the equanimity practices are about knowing that there'll be setbacks and developing this resilience inside so that you can be with the ups and downs of your investments or the ups and downs of your business. And knowing that in advance can lead to very different decisions than if you have this some idea that it's gonna be this constant upward trend. So that's equanimity, um, which is also upeka in, in, in the Pali language. And then I thought we could talk a little, a little bit about sympathetic joy. Sure. Yeah, because sympathetic joy is, to me, the Buddha was really recognizing something underneath sympathetic joy. Sympathetic joy is about feeling joyful for another's success, right? And, and that's somewhat of an un-American idea, right? The idea that you're going to be happy when other people are happy. Uh, you know, I grew up in New York City, and, and uh, you know, I grew up to be competitive, to not be happy when another person is happy. And I think what the Buddha was really pointing to was envy and ill will. And what I became aware of in my life is how much envy I had of a person in my life, a friend in my life. And I saw how it was really keeping me from enjoying this person, loving this person, and also being successful myself. 
because every time this person had, you know, had something to report about their life going well, I noticed, you know, the, this, this, these unpleasant emotions, like I wasn't proud of them, that here I was meditating for several years and I was still having all this envy. So, you know, so let's, you know, let's, um, so if I can call this person Buddha, Buddha boy for a moment, Tammy, um, Buddha boy is, was someone who can meditate for hours perfectly still. He's this super athlete. He has two best-selling books. And I kept saying, what about me? Why is this person getting all the attention? Can't the sun shine a little less on him and a little more on me? And that's when I turned to this, to this Mudita sympathetic joy practice. And, I, and the, the essence of it is wishing that person absolute success, more success. And I was like, that is the craziest thing wishing him more success. You know, there's a part of me that wants him to fail a little bit, but I took on the practice because I knew how much it, this was costing me this envy. And I did it for a month and you know what happened? Nothing in a month, nothing. I felt no change, but I stayed with it. And in the second month of doing this, wishing this continued success for him, amplified success, things started to shift. And I can say today that, that I feel happy when Buddha boy calls me and tells me about another success in his life. The envy in my body has decreased immeasurably. Okay, Spencer, I want to really get into this for a moment because I think almost all of us yes. can relate and can think of someone that we compare ourselves I, to. I like that you use that word compare because I think that's the generic word for it is we, comp there, we have a lot of comparing minds, right? Yeah. And in, in this case, since we're talking about the inner mastery of money, we compare our financial situation to their financial situation. And, you know, th their money seems to be multiplying. Uh, and okay, so how do I actually do this? I pick the person who for me is Buddha girl or Buddha boy or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. How do I actually take time to wish this person success? What do I do? What am I saying? How am I practicing this? Okay. So I invite you to close your eyes and picture this person in your mind's eye. And, you know, notice for a moment, just breathe for a moment. Notice how you're feeling even as we begin this exercise. And then as you're picturing this person, say to this person, either silently or semi-audibly, I wish you unlimited success. May you flourish in all ways. May your happiness continue and increase. All right, so let's just pretend that when we say inside, I wish you unlimited success, we hear a little smarmy voice that says, no, I don't. <laughs> what, what, what do we do then? Well, that's what I, I, for a month, Tammy, nothing happened with this practice with me. It didn't, in, it, you know, it, it, in, it, some days it actually, just like you're saying, it got worse. I was really became even more aware of, of this intense envy that I had. And I'd say continue that just bring constancy to this practice because it, that was my experience is that it, it took me about six weeks of doing this practice daily. 
I spent about five minutes a day on it daily for about six weeks until I started to see that structure of envy start to fall apart, that structure of the comparing mind fall apart. And, you know, to me, the, the ability to enjoy another person's success, particularly in the business world, is such a, a liberating and powerful thing because it's, if you can do that, you're not wasting energy in this comparison, comparing mind. You're not wasting en- energy with envy. You're, you're enjoying this person's success and that joy can actually feed you. It feeds your creativity. And you're also able to call that, that Buddha boy person and say, hey, just wanted to, to check, pass something by. You're, you're able to connect with that person and get ideas from that person, learn from that person. Okay, so when the practitioner says these phrases, yeah. I wish you unlimited success, is that accompanied by visualizing, seeing images of the person you know, on the cover of the New York Times or whatever it might be? That's a little bit of what I did, yes. I would, I would see this person, uh, I'd see, yes, I'd see the person with their best-selling book, uh, I'd see the person sitting absolutely still in meditation, you know, being this super marathon athlete. I'd see all that in my eyes. Uh, and, you know, I think the biggest thing was really having this earnestness about it, you know, so in, it's really like practice till you make it with this. Really, I really dedicated myself because, I mean, this is where, you know, you had said earlier, what what is ever going to bring us to this place of enough? Well, what brings us often to these places of letting go of envy or getting to this place of enough is pain is like we're, we, we get to this place where we're not satisfied anymore with how much it's costing us to be in envy, how much it's costing us to be in the sense of lack or scarcity, which is the opposite of enough. It's like that we're in that place of fear and scarcity that doesn't often bode well for success in the world or happiness in the world. All right. Now you briefly mentioned equanimity as mm. another one of these immeasurables, this terrific ocean of being able to go with the ups and downs of our economic life. What do you suggest for someone who says, you know, I'm fine with the ups, but I'm not so good with the downs? How do I cultivate equanimity during a down cycle? Mm. Well, one is to re- is to recognize that there are down cycles, and I think some of us have this idea that if we're if we you know like I said earlier if we if we're really good uh, humans we won't have down cycles, and I think the other thing is is let's work on these um, fixed beliefs. I think some of the fixed beliefs, including maybe the belief that it should all go well, is often keeping us. Or maybe there's some other belief that we should always be successful. Um, you know, I inherited a little bit of that kind of belief. And then it's it's also this having, I think some of our meditation practices are really powerful for working with resilience, for feeling the pain, the, 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 the anxiety that accompanies a downturn. And instead of pushing it aside, actually opening to it. So I don't know if you're familiar with the RAIN practice, but that's something I do where that R stands for recognize in RAIN, of recognizing the pain, the anxiety, 
uh, in the body when there's a downturn and then the A is allowing even that, that pain or anxiety to amplify in the body. And then the I is investigating is, is what is this about? Getting really curious, like a, like a curious kind scientist. Uh, and then the last step in RAIN is N is, is nurturing, is, is, is telling yourself that I believe in you, I love you, I care for you. You're gonna get through this downturn. I, that's been a very powerful exercise for me as well. Um, with cultivating equanimity. Okay, let's let's make it a little grittier, Spencer. Yeah, let's yeah. say someone is in some kind of downturn, like they lost their job or something like that, mm. and they just have a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear. And listening to an inspiring talk like this, it's barely kind of penetrating the fear that they feel, the survival level fear, meaning that it's just what comes up, even if they have savings or whatever, the still, you know what I'm saying? It's like, this is absolutely terrible. I am terrified. How would you apply, whether it's the rain practice or this teaching of equanimity, how would you help someone in that state? Who's absolutely terrified? They're, yeah, they're, they're, no. they're afraid. They're yes. Afraid. Yes. I would say, I would say, take a money breath. That's what I would say. Uh, so, um, my money breath is actually the wall street journal did a published my money breath on the front page a while ago, which I thought was really amusing that they took that, but it, you know, the money breath is about, it's, 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 it's about getting oxygen into the body. Cause when we're in that fear flight fight place, that fight flight place, uh, there's not a lot of oxygen coming to the body. And so I came up with this idea of the money breath of, of taking an inhale, inhaling through the nose and then exhaling through the mouth and making the exhale twice as long as the inhale. So that'd probably be the first thing I do is start to oxygenate the body because you're operating on fear. And the next thing I would do is start to look at some of the, your fixed beliefs and we can do that if you if um, if you'd like, Tammy. We can do a yeah, little practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's with, do it with fixed beliefs because there's definitely a fixed belief probably happening when we're in that really terrified place. We might have a belief like it's over. I'm never going to be successful. This is the way life is going to be. You know, I'm just. I was handed a bad uh, bad cards around money. So the first thing we'll do is is to think about what, what is circulating in your mind, what circulates in your mind around money, what beliefs. So what, like maybe it's a belief that I'm never gonna be good with money. What are those, those unproductive, often negative critical beliefs that we have around money, or maybe not critical, just any belief that you feel you cling to. It's, it's a belief that, um, that circulates in your mind often around money. It could be that you should only buy a house or you should only rent. So, and you might also think back to your childhood because often we have this money initiation and think back to a message that you received from your caregivers, from family members, from maybe from other friends or the culture around money. I mean, for me, I, I, when I was eight years old, I asked my father, how much money do you make? And he gave me a stare. He never answered my question, but that stare told me 
spoke volumes. It told me that you should never, ever talk about money. It also told me that money must be the most important thing in the world. So, so, so travel back to childhood for a moment and see if you can find a prominent belief that you acquired. And just breathe into that, recognize that belief and recognize the associated emotions around that belief and maybe even the sensations, the tension in the body that accompanies that belief. Now that you're clear on this belief that it's probably been guiding a lot of your money behavior, guiding maybe the way you spend, the way you save, the way you are willing or not willing to talk about money, whether you're able to uh, talk about your fees in the business world, uh, whether you're able to ask for a raise, um, how, how, you, um, how, you, how you borrow money. I mean, it might, this, these beliefs often affect every aspect of our money life and our business life. All right, so now what I'd like you to do is, as you're remembering the story, I invite you to become the awareness of this story, to become the witness. So bringing your adult self into this story. So you're remembering the story from maybe when you were, you know, five years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, and you're seeing this younger version of yourself and then you as the adult are, are outside witnessing. You're the awareness, you're the witness to what's happening and seeing this whole scene where you got this message. And maybe it could have been something less dramatic than what I received. You know, I received this in my father not answering my question when I asked him how much money you make. It could have been in many households like your family just didn't discuss money, but it was obvious that there was tension around money, but they, there was, everyone was numb around it. So witnessing that, I invite you to open your heart and offer compassion for this younger version of yourself. That this younger version just happened to receive this message and it wasn't their fault, that they, they were just in the room, they didn't know anything about money, and they somehow inferred this belief that I'll never be good with money, or money's the most important thing in the world. So offering compassion to this young, younger version of yourself, and now also seeing the adults in this scene and offering compassion for them as well. And recognizing that they have their own money histories. And consider the possibility that the adults intended to convey something positive or we're trying to protect you in some way. Or they were dealing with their own money trauma from their childhoods. And I, I invite you to imagine this adult saying or doing the, 
the opposite or something very different from what they said or did. Just trying this on, we're in the sandbox, we're playing here together. Just imagine this adult saying or doing the opposite or something very different from what they said or did. And be aware of how you feel in the body with, with witnessing that, hearing that, something, getting a very different message with money. And we know, of course, this is feasible because often our siblings get completely different messages about what we grew up with, about money, about many things. So the question now is, who would you be if you received this new message around money growing up? Who would you be? Can also put it in the present tense. Who are you with this new message around money? And just let yourself feel that. And you might even imagine how, how that would show up for you, how you might be different in the business world, how you might be different with your personal finances. And then letting go of this scene and start to travel back to this moment and acknowledge, acknowledge what's arising for you as you start to travel back to this present moment, staying with yourself, even as you begin to open your eyes and connect with the world around you. And this is where often in the workshop, Tammy, where I'll have people go straight to journaling mm -hmm. and write down the insights that they gained from, from doing this reframe. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you a question, Spencer, because yeah. a couple of times you've referred to uh, doing this in the context of being a business person as well. Yes. And as we were doing the exercise and I was hearing you say that, one of the thoughts that occurred to me, I'm now a business person who's wishing my competitors unlimited success. Mm. I'm spending time in my meditation practice, wishing them unlimited success. And also I'm re-scripting some of my early money memories. So I'm not gonna be as driven to be like success, success, success. I'm gonna be enjoying the flow of my life more. And the question I have for you is, am I going to be less or more successful running a company? <laughs> um, well, you know, the, I think the, the answer from Buddhism is that, you know, with equanimity, with sympathetic joy, with compassion, self-compassion and compassion for others, with, with kindness towards oneself and others, with generosity. I mean, all of those things put one in an elevated state of being. I mean, these are the four highest emotions in Buddhism. And in that elevated state of being, I can't help but imagining uh, that you will be more successful. I, I have felt more successful as a result of these practices. Now, maybe that's going to lead to one day realizing that you have enough 
and taking your company from a billion in revenues to 2 billion is not necessary. That it's enough and you can enjoy it. And there's no there there. Uh, but I think it, it, I think if anything, you're going to be much more in the flow. And we all are very attracted to people who are in that ease and flow or aren't in that place of desperation or scarcity. I mean, who's going to get the business when you're selling in the business world? And often, you know, we, we are, we're always, all of us are in somewhat of a sales role, especially if we're in, have our own businesses. But even not, we're sort of almost even teachers are in some ways selling. Who who gets the opportunity, the person who's desperate and clinging for it, or the person who's in that place of equanimity, who's radiating generosity and sympathetic joy? Very well said. Now, you mentioned generosity, meta, yes. Yes. Culti- cultivating. How do we do that? What's the actual yes. practice for doing that? Obviously, yes. it involves giving some of our money away. Well, not necessarily. I mean, there's certainly the example of, you know, some people like Andrew Carnegie, who created, you know, the public library system, you know, uh, all around the world, he funded libraries. So you can do some wonderful things with money, with generosity, but you can also give away your time, give your time, resources, skills, uh, to others as well. And the effects are similar. Uh, and I also say that with, even if you are going to give money, you don't have to give as much as Andrew Carnegie gave or as much as Warren Buffett gives. Uh, you, if you, giving even a, a dollar a month, I think you're still telling, you're still telling the brain that you have enough. And it's another way of getting to enough is by cultivating generosity because you're telling yourself I must have enough. The brain is thinking, well, I must have enough because this person is giving something away. So those are, those are a couple of ways. And the, the other thing about generosity, it really comes from this place, like I said, of enoughness. So doing a gratitude practice, doing an appreciation practice for what you have is a very powerful um, way to cultivate generosity. Uh, you know, it's, often we're we're in this place of like it's so easy to get new things on Amazon and what about appreciating what we have and that puts me in a place of generosity uh, in a place of less not I'm not feeling as much scarcity when I'm validating and, and having gratitude for all the abundance that's in my life all the good things that are in my life non-material material Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've talked about some different emotional aspects related to starting to be on a path, let's just say, of the mastery, the inner mastery of money. What about someone whose issues relate to spending? They overspend. Mm-hmm. How can the work you've done with the Dharma of money help someone who has a spending challenge? Yeah, well, I think it's the spending, you know, what's the at the root of the spending is there, it could be um, spending money to avoid feeling uh, the pain of my life. And the spending can be this cover up for that because it's so easy to spend money today. And, and the culture is all about buy something and you'll feel better. So I think, again, it's it, this, this practice of, of appreciating what you have. There's even the idea of taking something that you value, putting it in a closet or your garage, putting a date on your calendar, 
to uh, retrieve it in, in three months. And you will value that object so much more that you've been without. Uh, so I would start to look at where, how are you getting value from that spending and really look at your priorities and what's giving you real value and, and what feels like just autopilot spending. And then I'd start to slow down the spending. I'd start to really watch yourself as you're spending and use this as a, as a meditation practice. Like every time you spend, what slow it down? What's really happening? What's the, what's driving you to hand over that credit card? And like a, a monastic teacher of mine once said that the moment of greatest happiness is the moment right before we, you know, maybe put, type in our credit card uh, on the screen or hand over our card. Once you've given the card and get the item, um, our happiness starts to decrease. So start to notice all of this. And I think, um, and, and I think it also comes back to this idea of this self-worth and net worth is recognizing how incredibly wealthy you are, that there's no comparison between anything you can have or any amount of money you can earn and who you are. I mean, I've often asked the question, would you prefer a billion dollars and one additional health challenge or your current life? And I've had very few people who've taken the billion dollars and one additional health challenge, even a modest health challenge. So there obviously is so much value that we're not recognizing in ourselves. And we need to get to that place, recognize this, this priceless nature of our own beings. And I think maybe that spending will start to dampen the need to spend, will start to dampen. Now, one thing I've heard you teach on that I think is really useful, and I wonder if you can describe it to our listeners, is this idea of finding someone in your life who could be a money ally for you wow. and uh, help you be sane when it comes to money. Uh, tell me how I find a good money ally and make sure it is someone who's gonna help me be sane. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of my work, Tammy, is about helping us get to this place of, of at, being able to access our wisdom. I mean, often I've said that money is this distinct field where all of us have the ability to be really successful. It's really different from the world of like becoming a surgeon takes a decade or more, becoming a great violinist takes uh, decades, but becoming really good with money, we can do that in, in weeks. I mean, it's so much of it is about common sense. So it's like, how do we access our common sense and let go of the emotional cobwebs that are keeping us from being able to access that? And well, just to pause right there, no. Spencer, when you said, you know, we can become really good with money in a matter of a couple of weeks, I, I could certainly hear inside my head plenty of people saying something like, say what? Uh, I've been working for decades to become even reasonable with money, how I handle my investments, saving, yeah. Yeah. finding the right balance with how much I should give away, working out stuff with my spouse so that we're on the same page with money, et cetera. And you're telling me I can actually 
uh, figure this out in, yeah. in a few weeks? Like, yeah. I, no, I don't believe you. Yes. Well, it's not that complicated. And I've seen people who know very little about money. And like I said, I've seen people who know everything about money who are, you know, can handle their finances intelligently because they're just letting their emotions override all their decisions. It's really comes down to common sense. And our, that wisdom is in each of us with money. There are some very simple rules to follow with money, which we can all gain access to. I mean, they're all over the internet. Um, I mean, there's just some support, like you spend less than you earn. You, 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 if you're gonna invest, you spread it out into many things. But a lot of us don't follow these simple rules. You know, we put, we put, put a lot on credit cards. We concentrate our investments in just a few things. So a lot of this work is designed to see if we can, to, to settle those, those um, to dissolve some of the fixed beliefs that we have, some of these, um, and, and to settle some of the emotions we have around money so that we can come to this place uh, centered place and access our wisdom. And you're mentioning this money ally, that this is an additional resource. And I think it, it's very helpful. And, and I have a money ally in my life. I have a professional money ally. So you can hire some, you know, a professional advisor, assuming that person has, um, has some awareness of some of this, this, this inner work of money, which I think is really the, the critical work. Um, and it can also be a non-professional. It could be a friend, not a best friend, preferably someone who doesn't live in your area, but someone you trust, someone who has common sense. Doesn't need to be someone who has years of financial experience or is even in the financial industry in any way, but just someone who has common sense who you trust. And you can do this trade with each other. And many, many people from my workshops have been doing this for years. I have one couple has been doing it with another couple. They've, they're on like their 12th year of having regular periodic check-ins with the other couple about, hey, we're about to buy a house. Here's our situation. Are we crazy? Those kinds of check-ins are so valuable because money, because of the stigma around money, because it's such this taboo topic, we're often told like I was, don't talk about money. We keep it private. And that privacy leads to us doing un, unhelpful things, unwise things with money. I mean, I can think back to my life, Tammy, of some of the crazy investments I've made in my life. I didn't want to tell anyone about them because I knew they were crazy. But I just, I, and I didn't want anyone to talk me out of them. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you mentioned money as a taboo topic because mm -hmm. on the one hand it's something people talk about a lot a lot they talk about you know their concerns what they're doing this that but yet it's also really taboo to share our our deep feelings and our deep fears around money yeah. so i wonder what what is the way to bring money uh, out of this taboo world, make it normal and share about it in a way that's going to be productive, that that's yeah. helpful, where we can learn from each other. Yeah, it's, well, A, it's recognizing that we have a predisposition to not talk about it and certainly not talk about it consciously with intention with people who are going to be non-judgmental and listen in a very receptive way. And that's, you know, what my workshops are about. 
Um, I mean, there's also things like under earners anonymous, overspenders anonymous. I think those are also very viable places where one could have a conscious uh, conversation around money. Uh, and then this money ally possibility. Um, but I think it's starting to investigate what's in that submerged iceberg, your beliefs. You know, so a lot of women take my workshop because they complain about they feel like they've always been under earning. And when they start to investigate the beliefs that have supported that under earning, just that awareness starts to break down the, the rigidity of those beliefs. And they gain some comfort in being able to say, hey, here are my fees and not being shy about sharing those fees. So I think it's this recognizing of and, and discussing in, in safe environments our, our money tendencies and like, you know, with business partners, there's another opportunity or a romantic partner is to at least know what is the, what's the money tendency of your uh, business partner and yourself, you know, is, are, is that person more risk averse, less risk averse? Is that person more likely to want to spend a lot or, or be save a lot? I think those are important things to know going into um, a business relationship. Now, let me, let me ask you a question, Spencer, because yeah. you mentioned that there are many women who attend your workshops who identify as under earners. Mm. What, what is the fixed belief under that that's keeping those women from being able to confidently earn the kind of money that would be industry standard for the quality of their work. Yeah, I think some of the beliefs are from our culture. I mean, it's just been um, conditioned. Uh, I don't deserve money. I don't deserve to earn a lot of money. I'm not good with money. Uh, I mean, I've heard from so many women who say that my brother got a financial education from my parents, but I didn't. I was left out of that. Even younger people today have, you know, tell me people in their twenties and thirties will sometimes share that with me, uh, that there's this bias around money uh, that a lot of us carry. And so breaking down those beliefs, seeing that those beliefs are not really true, that it's just a belief. And just when, when they start to feel the pain underneath those beliefs and really meet them instead of just reacting to those beliefs, something softens. It, the grip loosens. And like the Buddha talked about, when, when we become less attached to our beliefs, it's sort of game over. Our, or, or it, it, you know, we, 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 our life is, is, is different. We, we're, we're, we're liberated. We start to be liberated from the confines of that belief. And we're able to approach the, the earning, the, an earning conversation, a, a business conversation in a new way with, without the backpack, that heavy backpack of, I don't deserve money. Um, it's maybe we still have that awareness of that belief, but it's no longer driving us. Now, I'm so happy, Spencer, that you're going to be bringing your work with the inner mastery of money, the Dharma of money, to the inner MBA. And I, I want to ask you a couple of questions that I've been hearing from people who are currently in the inner MBA program. Mm. And one of the questions that I have been hearing from a lot of people is that I'm in transition. I want to do more purposeful work in the world, work that's more aligned 
with who I really am. I've been doing this work because it makes me money, but it's not really what I want to be doing. But I'm scared to make that shift. What would you mm. say to that person in terms of engaging in purposeful work? But I won't make yeah. as much money. Yes, I'd say first of all, there's such a we're so drawn to being vague about our money. And the first thing is know the truth, know your numbers. So know what does it cost you to, to live your life in the current way? And maybe what would it cost you to live your life if you had a, a job that you, that you were totally aligned with? Maybe it would cost less. Maybe, you know, with all the travel that your current job requires, it's like you need so many massages to, to get by. So make, you know, do those columns so you know the numbers because maybe in this new career, you don't need the kind of money you previously did. And I think the other part of it is to recognize what's this, what's really important. Like how, you know, once there's been all these studies done on, on money and, and, you know, usually the studies come out with somewhere around $75,000 or $100,000 of, of income. Once we get to those levels, like our happiness rises up to those levels, but beyond that, we, we our happiness tends to plateau. So recognizing that and seeing what actually gives you joy in your life. And I would bet that there's a lot of things that are giving us joy that don't require much or any money. So I think that those can help kind of alleviate the anxiety. Uh, and I think I'd start also gating some data, like talking to people who have made a lot of money and ask them, like, what has all this money done for you? Or ask somebody who's given up the, 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 that fast track and ask, do you have any regrets about not having as much money as you could have had? Um, I think, you know, in, what I'm sort of pointing to is instead of staying in the head with anxiety, is getting out there and taking action and really investigating what would what might happen if you took this other career path. Okay, and here's another question that I yeah. think a lot of people are grappling with in the inner MBA. People who got a traditional business degree, and you've referenced a couple of times your MBA from Wharton, a degree, you know, and this is how you do things. This is how you negotiate a deal so that you can emerge successful from the negotiation. And now they're getting deeply immersed in an inner MBA where mm. they're learning what it means to recognize our inherent interdependence with each other. And they're trying to put all this together. How do I function as this new kind of business person? And I'm curious just what, what some of your comments might be about that. <laughs> Yeah, a new kind of business person who's who uh, has respect for others and is connected to others, who's ethical. Is that what you're pointing to? Yeah, and really, we're going to come through this together on the other side of, you know, I'm not negotiating against you, but we're going to figure this out together. And this sense of like, almost like my conventional education and these new wisdom realizations are in conflict. I feel like I'm getting rewired. I don't know how to operate anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, you know, the, you know, the, the MBA I received was definitely an outer MBA. And th there were some useful things. I'm not going to completely put that MBA down. But it was, in some ways, it, it, 
it didn't really produce my success. It didn't really produce the happiness that I have in my life, the equanimity, the resilience that I have in my life, the skills that one really needs to be successful. I mean, this is going back for a moment to this last question that when people say to me, I'm going to earn less in the new career, how do you know that? Because you might, you might work longer because I know so many people have burnt out of careers. So 10 years making three X, you know, versus 30 years making two X might be a lot more money, right? Good point. Yeah. So I, I would say, you know, I think the whole world, I mean, um, my company is a B corporation. The whole world is recognizing that it's not all about money and, and that your sustainability of your, of, of being able to sustain yourself in the working world and sustain your happiness and your well being, in some ways depend on this inner landscape. And that's why I think I'm also so drawn to this program, the, the, the inner MBA program, because it's really what is going to produce this inner success for us. And I believe it actually produces outer success too. I mean, it's, it's, we have to be at our best creative selves. And when you're, like you said earlier, you said, are, are you really going to wish success for your competitors? Like, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, I, I need to keep reinventing things and coming up with creative ideas. The world is changing so fast. I mean, impermanence is here to stay, even though we prefer otherwise sometimes. So we, you know, this working on our fixed beliefs, uh, coming to this place of enough, uh, letting go of envy, uh, pointing ourselves more and more to this present moment instead of being so focused on the future. All of this helps us in the business world, helps us, you know, helps us be more creative, helps us attract the best people. I mean, we want people who are fun to work with, right? Who are creative and going to love working with us. And how do we create, cultivate that kind of environment? I think it's, it's, it's by, you know, first being that leader who's cultivated the kind of landscape that's going to attract these amazing people. Okay. I have to ask you this other question about this enough yeah. point, yeah. because yeah. I think <laughs> a lot of times people think to themselves, there's a number that I need. Yes. There's this yes. number that I need. Yes. I need to bank X amount of money. Yeah. Uh, and it's some number so that they can retire and they never have to work again. And da, 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 da. what do you think about that? Is that the right calculation that people should go through to figure out what their enough point is? Is that what you did to help yourself relax with enough? Yeah. So first of all, I'll say, you know, like I said earlier, there's 10 or 15% of our population who literally doesn't have enough. And there's a huge, I think a huge transformation that would take place in this country if those people had their basic needs met. And for the rest of us, and you know, for myself, there was there have been all these studies that recognize the 75 to $100,000 kind of level is enough. That's one data point. Um, but the other thing is what I've seen is like often it's, if we're thinking in terms of like finding that number, it's very easy for the mind to keep second guessing and saying, well, wait a second, what if I need a new brain? A new brain might cost a billion dollars. <laughs> so, you know, it's never enough. And, you know, I kind of contrast often, you know, John Rockefeller with 
uh, Chuck Feeney. Chuck Feeney is, is um, earned $8 billion and he gave away nearly everything. He kept 2 million of the 8 billion. So he kept less than 1% of his wealth does not own a house in San Francisco, rents, does not own a car. He said that's enough. What he wanted was engagement with the world. That's what that's what gave him wealth, was engagement with all of his philanthropic work. And I think that's where we have to find, come to is what is going to give you this power in life? What's going to make you feel like you're giving your gifts to the world, that you're 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 living your best life? What's going to help you do that? And just having a storage room of money um, often does the opposite. So, you know, because we're, the more money we store, we, you know, the more we tend to kind of relapse into fear and scarcity. So there's a balance here. I'm not saying that one shouldn't have savings, but I think a lot of us tend to overdo that sense of like, well, you can never be secure. You know, you can never have enough, which is a lot of the messages that my parents gave me. So I think it's eventually just dropping in and saying, hey, I have enough. I'm going to continue saving or doing whatever I feel is really right to do. But start to operate as if you have enough money, you have enough time. You know, I've often said, don't instead of telling people I'm totally swamped, more than full, tell people that you're feeling spacious, you know, practice till you make it with that. But just turning around these, these cultural, this strong cultural conditioning that there's always scarcity and you can never actually arrive. Beautiful. I've been talking with Spencer Sherman. With Sounds True, he'll be offering a new Conscious Business Accelerator as part of the Inner MBA program on the Inner Mastery of Money. The Inner MBA is a nine-month immersion training program that Sounds True's created in partnership with LinkedIn, Wisdom 2.0, and a division of NYU called Mindful NYU that gives certificates of completion to participants when they graduate from the nine-month program. And you can learn more at innermbaprogram.com. Spencer, I'm so glad you're bringing your wisdom about money to the Inner MBA. Thank you. I'm very thrilled to be part of this program. I mean, to me, it's about, it's about getting an Inner MBA, not an Outer MBA. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com. Waking up the world. <laughs>